Olaso, this morning we'll continue with the settling the mind in its natural state. And as you may be expecting, we'll shift the emphasis, the focus, again, rather like the focus of a telephoto lens or simply a lens on a camera. We'll shift the focus to the background, to, this, to the, what will eventually reveal itself as the substrate. For the time being, we'll simply call it the Dharma Dhatu, as in simply the domain, the space, the field of mental events. It's very important to recognize before we go in that what we're attending to is not simply an absence. So it's a type of space, but in Tibetan, it's not a simple negation, and it's not permanent. And for those of you who've been attending to it for a while, you may already recognize this space has its own qualities. It has maybe even a fizzy quality, a dynamic kind of an energetic quality to it. But so on the one hand, during those intervals between thoughts, we're attending to a space, so we're attending to some domain where there is something is missing, and that is any distinct mental events, images, or thoughts. So there's something missing, the thoughts, the players on the stage, but there is something present that appears to us that is the stage, that is the, that is the, the space of the mind. And what's important about this, this isn't just philosophy for philosophy's sake, I mean, I love philosophy, but it should have some pragmatic application to my mind, uh, is that the point here is in between thoughts, and this will pertain immediately to your next session, if you're, especially if you're practicing settling the mind. In between thoughts, it's imperative that you sustain a flow of knowing. It's not like simply knowing, knowing, oh, now there's no thoughts. Okay, I wait. Oh, oh now there's more thoughts. Now I know, I know, I know. It, the stream of knowing has to be continuous. So sometimes the knowing will be the event that arises in the space. But when you can't discern any, any, any event, any distinct thought or image, then maintain just in a constant flow, knowing, and now what are you knowing? You're knowing the space. And as you know that, then, and as you start to refine, to fine-tune your awareness of that space, then the vividness starts to increase, and you may start to discern mental events where previously you thought there were none. And why? Because they were subtler than your quality of awareness. But now you're developing high resolution, HD, high definition, high, defi high definition awareness of the space, this three-dimensional space of the mind, and the higher definition, the higher resolution, the greater acuity, then you'll be able to discern subtler and briefer events, and that which seemed like it was merely an empty space winds up being populated with subtler and subtler and subtler images. And so this is the, the whetstone, and a whetstone for non-native English speakers is a stone on which, that you use to sharpen a knife, a whetstone. That space, that's the whetstone. That's the whetstone for the vividness, the sharpness, the acuity of your attention. As you attend to that and get a clearer and clearer perception of that space, then you will able, be able to discern subtler and subtler and subtler events and briefer events, and that will continue to take the butter knife of your attention and turn it into a scalpel. Okay? Good. Let's jump in and do it.
So with that preamble, I can use fewer words now for the actual session. So you'll need to do less multitasking of meditating and also listening to the instructions. So as you're well familiar, let's settle the body in its natural state and the respiration in its natural rhythm and begin by calming the mind with mindfulness of breathing. As a prelude to the main practice, let's focus the mindfulness on the space of the body. And whatever tactile events arise within that space, (coughs) and attend to this space and its contents with mindfulness free of distraction and free of grasping. See if you can note, can you perceive the space of the body and not only the tactile events that arise within that space.
now with your eyes at least partially open and your gaze vacant. Direct your mindfulness to the space of the mind and whatever arises within it. But as I mentioned before, with special emphasis or focus, first of all on the intervals, the space that appears during the intervals between thoughts, while also taking note of the thoughts themselves. Thoughts come and go, but the space of the mind is always present as an ongoing flow, for it is the space out of which thoughts emerge, in which they are present, and into which they dissolve. Sustain an ongoing flow of mindfulness, of the ongoing flow of the space of the mind, and whatever arises within it. Applying introspection, balancing the attention when it falls to an extreme. And let's continue practicing in silence.
And let's bring the session to a close. As an analogy, and I think it's quite a powerful analogy, it's a well-established fact in modern physics that space has its own, its own energy. And that is, you can take a volume of space and then, as a thought experiment, just imagine sucking everything out of it, every, right down to the elementary particles, and then every form of energy, thermal energy, electromagnetic, as a thought experiment, imagine even sucking out gravitational energy. So in other words, you've just got a volume of totally empty space with nothing in it except for space, 100%. Well, it's turned out, it's called the, it was uh, experimentally confirmed with something called the Casimir effect, and this was really the central topic of my undergraduate thesis in physics, the zero-point energy and the Casimir effect that gave empirical evidence to that effect that there is actually an energy innate to space itself. And you can actually, and I, I did the mathematics, you can actually calculate the en energy density of empty space. But you simply cannot have space without energy. You can add all kinds of energy to it. You can add electromagnetic, gravitational, and so forth. But if you take away all the additives, space still has its own energy. It's called the, the zero-point energy of the electromagnetic vacuum. I think it's a rather strong parallel. In fact, a very strong parallel. We're attending now to a space and when scientists speak of, this, of such space, too, they are also not speaking of a sheer absence, a mere absence, but something that is saturated with energy. So clearly, that's not a, a sheer absence. And likewise, the space of the mind that we're attending to is not a sheer absence. It is a presence. And you may detect that there is a type of energy in that space. In fact, perhaps it's not too, much, too, too strong a metaphor to say it's that energy of the space that is actually taking form, that is getting configured as visual imagery, thoughts, memories, and so forth and so on, and dissolving back in. So energy becoming kinetic, manifesting in thoughts and so forth, and then dissolving back in potential, but a plenum, the space of the mind being more like a plenum, out of which the energy that is intrinsic to that space takes on all forms not only the forms in the space of the mind, but bear in mind all appearances to all the five physical senses are all appearing in the substrate. And therefore, everything you're seeing around you are displays of the energy of the space of your own awareness. So yesterday when I spoke of this stream of name and form, this flow of experience in which one facet, there is the naming quality, there's the facet of appearances arising, there's the cognizance of those appearances. One might think, if one has not understood what I said, one might think, oh, this is just a Cartesian soul all over again. This is just the Cartesian mind slapped together with physical matter. It's the same old problem. You still got the mind-body and mind -body problem or mind-matter and matter problem. So this is just the Buddhist version of it. And that misses the whole point. It really misses the whole point. This subtle continuum is not simply a mind. It is indeed a flow of consciousness, but it's also a flow of energy, a, f a flow of energy, 
and it's called, in the, in the, in the Kalachakra system, it's called jiva, so. Jiva is a flow of energy, but it's a flow of energy very much like an electromagnetic field. An electromagnetic field itself does not have information in it. It's just a field, it's just flat physical. But we all know, everybody has a laptop, everybody who's been awake in the 20th century knows that when you send messages from your laptop, what you're sending out is an electromagnetic field, which is not material, but it is physical, and it carries information. And so what is being transferred from lifetime to lifetime, what is fundamental, what is core here, is a flow of consciousness to be sure. This subtle continuum, I'm going to stick with the Dzogchen terminology, the substrate consciousness, subtle continuum mental consciousness, a.k.a. bhavanga. Together with that and inextricable from that is a flow of space, substrate. Space is not a mind, so this is not simply a mind. It is consciousness space, space consciousness, but it's not just space consciousness, it's a three-part, it's a trinity. And the trinity is energy, the sokigyun, the trinity of jiva, of energy, and that energy is configured with the information of your karma, your memories, your predilections, and so forth. And all three are inextricably intertwined. That's not mind. That's something prior to and more fundamental than mind and matter. But it has a physical aspect to it, and that's this prana, the subtle prana, lungtamo, lungtamo, which carries on from lifetime to lifetime. It's physical, but it's not material. Just as an electromagnetic field is physical, but it's not material in the sense that it's not made of atoms. So this proposal here is going from a neurocentric view, which is absolutely the dominating view of modern science, that everything you know, for a human being boils down to the brain. It's throwing that out very much in the same fashion that Galileo threw out the geocentric view, that everything goes around the earth. And he, and he supplanted that, replaced that with a heliocentric view, everything goes around the sun. And William James and the Buddhist tradition long before William James are suggesting that this whole neurocentric view or materiocentric view is completely a mistake. And what we should be thinking of as central is an empiricocentric view, an empiricocentric view, a flow of experience. William James's pure experience, the Buddhist view of nama rupa, this is fundamental. And the, the dichotomy of mind and body, that rotates around that. The mind and body du duality, which is derivative and constructive, actually is like the planets going around that which is truly central, and that is the flow of experience. The flow of experience being a flow of consciousness, of space, and of energy. So the parallel goes further, and then I'm going to stop. But I really love this material, it's hard for me to stop. But Galileo, one could say that the primary reason he was imprisoned was not simply because he was advocating a heliocentric view. Copernicus did, he was never punished for it. Kepler did, he was protected by a, a German prince, as I recall, or a duke, something like that, aristocracy, uh, and he was also a Protestant. But that wasn't the primary reason that Galileo had house imprisonment. Because that was, that was a view that was seriously considered by a number of churchmen and, and so forth. It wasn't terrible. I th and Galileo was, a, he was number one, he was not very diplomatic, so that could have been a sufficient reason, because he actually insulted the Pope, and that was a bad idea in the early 17th century. Don't insult the Pope. You know, insult an American president is okay, but the Pope, that could be really dangerous. What I think his primary crime was, 
and it was a really serious crime, and I understand why he was house arrested, is that until he came along, this is the late medieval period, the church with its tremendous fusion, this brilliant fusion of Aristotelian physics and metaphysics with biblical theology, had authority over everything. That is, if you wanted to know the truth about anything, you would go to this great fusion of the wisdom of the Greek, ancient Greeks and the Bible and the biblical tradition, and any question you had, there would be the source, the answer. And so mind, soul, God, angels, matter, space, time, you name it, this is the authority, there's one authority, and it's institutionalized by the church, and the church is fused with the state. We cover everything. And Galileo, as a devout Christian, was saying, <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> but for uh, we natural philosophers, we people making careful observations through our telescopes and so forth, making measurements, and relying primarily on experience, including sensory experience, primarily sensory experience, um, we'd like to just take the physical world away from you, if you don't mind. That is, if we discover anything experientially, empirically, we natural philosophers, that contradicts your wonderful story, your whole doctrine, um, you're wrong. And in fact, we're authorities, we natural philosophers, who are making our careful observations, of terrestrial phenomena, celestial phenomena, we actually have mm, greater authority than you do, and therefore um, we will now take one portion of your kingdom. You've got the spiritual, the transcendent, you've got the mental, the subjective, and then you've got the physical, and um, we would like one-third of the cake, we natural philosophers. We now want authority. If we find anything that contradicts what you believe, you're wrong and give us the authority for the physical, the objective, the quantifiable, because we're better at it than you are. And the Pope said, well, you can just go to your room <laughs> and stay there for the rest of your life and don't publish, shut up, because we don't want to give you one-third of the cake. We're doing very well dominating the whole cake. We want to have our cake and we want to eat it and if you don't like it, you can go to your room and we'll apologize for this in the 20th century. <laughs> it took a while. The Buddhist tradition, William James, and now this little pipsqueak Alan Wallace is saying, hello church of scientific materialism. You are now claiming authority over everything. You're telling us about the God gene while some people believe in God. You're telling us there's an article in the New York Times right now, The Science of a Happy Marriage. Guess what the science of happy marriage is? It's all brain chemistry. That's the science of happy marriage. It's not affection, it's not trust, it's not respect, it's brain chemistry. To my mind, the science of a happy marriage is really has a trilogy, affection, trust, and respect. Those three, if any of those three are missing, I don't think you have a happy marriage. If those three are there, I think you do. That's my science of a happy marriage. You can write that down if you like. <laughs> but no, they're talking about brain chemistry. So now the church scientific says the only explanation that is a real explanation that really explains is a biological one, a physical one. And until you have a biological explanation, it's no explanation. And William James 
and company, and I'm part of his company, says, that's just crap. Sorry, but you are extending your domain way beyond what you know about to reduce everything to biological mechanisms, these ridiculous underlying biological mechanisms, is just in-your-face dogma. And if we contemplatives, we introspectives, from William James right on through, the Hindus, the Christians, the Buddhists, and so forth, people who are good at it, really good at it, refined introspection, if we discover things about the nature of the mind that contradict your dogma, I'm sorry, but your sovereignty has now found a border. You're wrong and we will take one-third of your pie. In fact, we'll take one-half of your pie. We'll grant you the physical. You know much more about chemicals and electricity than the contemplatives do. You know a lot more about the brain than the contemplatives do. We'll grant you the physical. But when it comes to the mind, you people are making a mess of it. You're reducing it to that which it is not. You're making one absurd comment after another. You've been doing it for decades. You've been making a mess of it. So I'm sorry, but you don't have authority over this domain anymore. And if we contemplatives, people who are really looking at the phenomena, as Galileo looked at the phenomena, if we make discoveries that violate your dogmatic principles of materialism, well, then you're wrong, and you no longer have sovereignty over the whole of reality. Subjective experience counts. As you get one half of the pie, and we'll work with you on that basis. But if you don't want to work with us, then we'll just go off to Phuket and do our own thing. Ha, ha, ha.